Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 62, and it's a psalm that in many ways will hinge off of a truth bound up in a single word, and that word is alone or only. Or if you use the Legacy Standard Bible or a different variant of that that uses something different, it would be translated as the word surely. Not surely as an airplane, surely, but surely. So the idea, though, is that ultimately God alone will be the one that you trust in, that he is the one that you come to in every which way for your life and death and everything in between it. That one little word may seem inconsequential to you, but it is a vitally important word. It's a word that we have stressed at various points as we've been teaching or as we've been talking to some of you about what it means to simply be a Christian. We've stressed the importance of that word through various sermons. We've approved or even denied baptisms on the basis of that word alone, and for good reason. You see, when it comes down to your understanding of the gospel, that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that word alone has radical significance to it. It is quite literally the difference between heaven and hell. The simple reason I say all of that is that when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ, there are no additives. In other words, it will never be something that is Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is fully sufficient to save you from the penalty of your sins. There will never be anything else that will save you. And once you try to add to the work of Christ, it is no longer the gospel. Once you add to that word only, it is no longer a message of hope. It is ultimately just a message that will damn you. Now, the Reformers knew this well when they stressed the importance of that word alone in what we commonly call the five solas of the Reformation today. They opened up the word of God. They witnessed the perversions in the Roman Catholic Church at the time where it was always grace plus something else, like grace plus works or grace plus nursery. Whatever the case might be, they were always trying to capture grace plus something, Christ plus something. Well, the Reformers saw this. They studied the scriptures. They saw that it taught rather plainly, I might add, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and under the authority of the word of God alone. In other words, my point with all of this is to say that that word alone, though it may seem insignificant, actually carries a lot of weight behind it. There's no difference in our psalm today. Again, Though your translations might choose the word surely, it is the same thing as you know, King James when you see the word verily in the New Testament. It's emphasizing this truth, but the Hebrew stresses that it is God and God alone who we come to for salvation or everything else in between. Now, David is a man who once again finds himself in the midst of persecution and suffering, and he stresses the importance of this word. In fact, he uses it five separate times in just 12 verses, all to stress that God and God alone is worthy of our trust and our confidence, our faith. And so the inevitable question that this psalm simply drives you and I to is, do we trust and hope in God alone? 
Or do we trust in God plus something? Now, it's easy to say yes to that question, isn't it? It's easy for us to be able to look at it on the face and say, yes, I do trust in God alone. But as John Calvin put it, our hearts, that is your heart and my heart, the human heart in general is a veritable factory of idols. One right after the next, we are simply finding new ways to worship different things that do not deserve our trust and confidence. You and I are even so twisted in one sense that we know all of this, and yet we fool ourselves into thinking that though these things are dumb and mute idols that cannot save and will not provide a hope to us, we still give a little bit of our hearts away each time, don't we? We still place our trust in them, even if only a little. We place our trust in mortal men all the time. We place too much hope in a fallen world. We even buy into this broken promise that somehow this age that is trapped in futility and under the curse of sin can really deliver what it promises. And yet all of these things will fail you in the end if you place your hope and trust in them. The reason for that is actually rather simple. The only one, and hear me on this, the only one worthy of trust is God. That is the simple truth at the end of this sermon. If you walk away with one thing today, let it just be that. Like all passages that teach on this reality, though, of hope and trust, it's not complete without a warning at the very end of this psalm. And that's what he does for us. When all is said and done, the psalmist turns our affections to God and says, do you trust in this one? And if you don't, understand there is a day of judgment coming in which all will stand before their maker and give an account. That is how this psalm simply ends. The only question that will matter in your life is not how much money you have in the bank, how many friends you've made, all the different things that you've been able to do by your own might and power. The only question that will matter at the end of all days is have you placed your trust in Christ alone? Apart from that, my life, your life, is relatively insignificant. But on that question hangs much in the balance. And so with that brief introduction, I want to simply show you three different ways that David calls, or three different reasons, rather, why David calls us to place our trust in God alone. Now, the first one he shows us in verses 1 through 4. The basic principle in this one is God alone is true, even when all others or everyone else is a liar. So if you look with me at verses 1 through 4, I want to show you this. Notice what he says here. My soul waits in silence for God only, or God alone. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you? Like a leaning wall or a tottering fence, they have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse." Notice how David begins this psalm. He begins with this incredible statement of just trust and confidence in God. He says, my soul waits in silence. For who? For God only. His nephesh, the very life being that is within him, will wait in silence, utter silence, just simply waiting for God to act and do something. And so immediately you get this sense of a man who is at rest in the midst of his trials. He's not scrambling. He's not frantic and trying to fix everything. He is literally at peace because he has held on to this important truth. 
The reality is that salvation can only come from God. At the end of the day, that's what David takes home to the bank, if you will. He is so confident that God will not leave him in the hands of his enemies, that God will deliver him, and the very reason for it is he says, God is the God of my salvation, meaning from God, salvation comes. There is no other source. And what it makes me think about or consider is how you and I often will handle our trials, Right There are times that will call for quick action and decisiveness. There are times where we have to do something. But more often than not, the reality is that trials, at least the ones that you and I are faced with in the Christian life, are only designed for one simple thing. They are designed to test the object of our faith and trust. Trials are often slow. The decisions that we tend to think we need to make so fast often don't need to be made all that fast. We find ourselves in a state of frantically thinking, I need to do this, I need to take care of that, when in reality, the best possible thing we can often do is simply sit still and remind ourselves of where our hope and our confidence actually lay. What happens, though, is that we're afraid. I mean, if we're going to be brutally honest with it, we are afraid of the what-ifs, the what-maybes. We're anxious of what might happen if we actually do nothing but resolve on the Lord, or resolve to wait on God, rather. And I think the reason why we become anxious or we become afraid or frantic even is that we ultimately have this unbiblical view of suffering and arguably even salvation. What I mean by that is this. We look at suffering as something to be avoided at every cost. We do everything we can to scramble out from underneath it. When it comes down to it, when we suffer, when we undergo trials, what we really believe is that we need to save ourselves. And so then we do things in light of that. And all it does is just reveal that there's a place in our heart where we have yet to put our soul trust in God. That's it. Trials have a magnificent way of simply revealing what it is you've already stored up within you. And when the trial hits, all of that comes out to bear. But the only reason why David is actually able to wait on God and to be in silence, to have rest, is because he looks at who God is and he knows who his God is. In other words, he knows that salvation comes from the Lord, right? He alone is my rock. He alone is my salvation. He alone is my stronghold. And so as he sees this God, he has confidence because he knows that apart from God, he cannot have any confidence. But notice again why he's confident here. Look with me at verse 2. I just said this, but it bears repeating. God alone is his rock. God alone is his salvation. God alone is his stronghold. And therefore, he says, I shall not be greatly shaken. He looks at God and he says, this is part and parcel to the very nature of who God is. He is these things to his children. When everything else is a faulty foundation, that's not God. He says he's a strong foundation. He is a constant rock upon which you and I stand. David looks at him and he says, when everything else provides no hope of rescue, from God literally comes salvation. He is the very source of it. When everything else in this life provides you with no safety, no security, who is the one who protects? Who is the one who is our stronghold? Who is our refuge? Who is our strength? It's built within the very character and the being of God to be these things. And so he's able to look upon God with confidence and say, 
even though everything right now is hitting the fan, so to speak, I can wait in silence upon my God because I know he will not fail me. All he does is remind himself of who God truly is. Notice how he just piles those attributes on top of one another. God is my refuge. God is my strength. God is my rock. God is my salvation. He's not looking at this as if God is various parts that are kind of cobbled together and just make him who he is, as if to say he is one part holy, one part just, one part loving, and so on and so forth. No, he's looking at the total sum of God in his perfection, in his infinite perfections, and saying, this is who God is, and he can be nothing else. God truly is, to me, the rock of my salvation, and therefore I have hope. In essence, David is saying, this is why God is worthy of my confidence. God truly is this. In light of who God is, I can say, I shall not be greatly shaken. But the presumption he has, to some degree, is that you and I actually will be shaken. We will have struggles. We will have challenges to our faith. To some degree or another, you will find yourself suffering or having hardship. You're going to have possibly even persecution and more. But the reality is, at the end of it, the question is always, who or what do you trust? What is your source of strength? When all else fails, who is the one that you go to? When all else is good... Who is the one you go to? The first place that many will turn to, and David shows us again in verses three through four, which we read earlier, is that many will turn to look at their men, you know, fellow mankind. They'll look at them and say, these are people that I can trust perhaps. But David shows us again to just be utter stupidity, utter folly in one sense. If you look down, you can see he shows by way of contrast to verses one and two, just how short-sighted this is. Again, notice the question he asks them. It's a rhetorical question. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him? All of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Right? So he begins with this rhetorical question about these men who are just relentless in their pursuit of him. And their goal is quite clear. You can see that from verse 3. All they want to do is kill him. But notice how he describes how weak he is. He's like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. That's what David is doing to describe himself. I'm basically at the point of being tipped over, and he says all that's needed really is just that final push. And these men are eager to do it. If they do it, David will just simply come tumbling down in ruins. And in one sense, it's a really rather interesting predicament because you get the sense these men are not stupid men. right? They're actually incredibly crafty and shrewd and clever. Verse 4 is where you can really start to see this and how they plot against him, right? He talks about how they counsel. If you look down, you can see it only to throw him down from his high position. And what they mean by that is simple. They do not want him to be king. So they want to throw him down from the throne, right? But notice how he describes these men. This is why I say they're clever. They love the lie. They delight in falsehood, he says. They delight in falsehood. They're the kind of people that take delight in this reality that though they might give outward words of blessing to him and praise his name everywhere, behind closed doors are a radically different person. They curse him because they want him dead. Now, perhaps they even are given to a very public commendation of him. 
They might extol his virtues and praise his name in the gates. They might shower praise on him in the earshot of everyone else. Even to his face, they might say everything that's good and right that you would want to hear from them. And yet behind closed doors, they're a radically different person. Inwardly, they hate him. Inwardly, what they want is him dead. Inwardly, they want the throne empty. These are highly skilled manipulators and liars of the worst sort, who though they show their support in public, in private, again, their true nature came out only when it was safe. You can see the poetic imagery here, can't you, though? Where he describes himself again as this teetering fence, about ready to just tip over. And you know what he means by that when he says that. There are certain people who just have this penchant for making the most out of a good tragedy. They want to make life the worst they can possibly make it for you. They know when everything is going wrong. They know the sore spot, where to dig in the finger and press on the wound. They know how to twist the knife, so to speak. And they might puff you up in front of the right people, but behind closed doors, again, they just tear you down. They know where to strike, where to push. When the time comes for it, all they'll do is just tip you over because that's their aim. That's all they care for. And Judas was that kind of man too, wasn't he? He followed the Lord of all creation. He witnessed miracles the like of which has never been seen on the earth. He saw priests even coming and saying, what manner of man is this that he teaches with authority? And yet those same priests he saw conspiring to try and kill Jesus. And rather than Judas maintaining his public persona, behind closed doors, he was a radically different person, wasn't he? Everybody saw him as Christ's friend, his disciple, his follower. And yet, in the end, all he did was betray him with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. And a mere 30 pieces of silver, if you didn't know it, in the book of Exodus, that's all that you would pay if your ox gored a slave. So when Judas looks upon Christ, he says he's not worth more than a dead slave. That's all he considered him to be worth. But the reality in this life is people will far or consider you far less valuable than that, won't they? And it's one of the hardest things you have to bear through. Oftentimes, these even can be the people closest to you. At the end of the day, mankind is just a fickle, frail-hearted creature, and we know that. And yet, what we do is we put our trust in them. And while that might sound like unbridled cynicism to many, chances are that every last one of you in this room, in some way, shape, or form, has been betrayed to at least some degree like this. And some of you are going through it more now. Some of you are the literal living embodiment of what Christ said when he said, on account of me, mothers will be betrayed by daughters, daughters by mothers, fathers by sons, sons by fathers, husbands by wives, wives by their husbands. All because of a delight in the lie. But just in case you and I are tempted to think we're different, that we're somehow above that. We're not. In all actuality, we're not much different than the ones who betray us. 
I'll, I'll ask just a simple question. How many of you have ever lied to the one you love? If you say no, I know you're a liar. But here's another question. How many of you have just simply delighted in telling that lie? Because at that moment, that was something that was a tool that you could get whatever it was you so desperately wanted in that time, in that moment. How many of you have talked behind somebody else's back? How many of you have puffed up your friend or others with a pleasant smile and flattering words right in front of them, and yet inwardly you despise them? Every last one of us, beloved, every last one of us has either been betrayed in some way by the deceptive lie, or we have used the deceptive lie to betray another. None of us are unscathed. Even David, King David, this man, this man that you see who says, I have my confidence in God, even he was not above that. He literally sent a man to the front lines of a battle to die just to cover up his adultery. He lied. And yet God had the audacity to forgive him when he repented. This is the reason Jesus says he did not entrust himself to the hearts of men because he knew what was inside. He had many who said, we will follow you, we will be your disciple, and yet they all went away. But he did not put his confidence in them, for he knew what was in the heart of man. That's your heart, that's my heart, that's literally every heart on the face of this earth. It's deceived, desperately sick. To to put it bluntly, you can't even trust yourself. And the reality is, if you can't trust yourself, then who do you trust? If everyone else could betray you, and you feel like, I've got my own back, you can't even do that, the way Scripture puts it. Well, David, according to David here, the only one you can trust is God. All may be liars, but God alone is true. All may deceive, but God alone has never deceived. That's the very first lesson we come away with in this psalm. Everyone else in all the world may prove to be a liar, but God alone is true. It's part and parcel to who he is. He can never tell a lie. He can never renege on his promises. Has he not said and will he not do it? Is he a son of man that he should change his mind? The scriptures emphatically say no. The very simple reason David actually had peace in the midst of his trials, even though these men who were puffing him up were actually looking to just kill him, is because he could look at God and say, I can put my full confidence in him. I can trust in him. I can trust in him alone. And that's where that word alone becomes rather significant again, doesn't it? Every last one of us is faced with this constant barrage of people who say, you should trust me. I should be the one that you put your heart towards. We have pundits who give cultural commentary every single minute of every single day. We have political figures who will promise the world to you even though it's not their world to give. You have life insurance salesmen, snake oil salesmen, everything else that will sell you or pitch you on a peace of mind as if they can really capture all of that in a brochure but none of them can. 
And you have everything else in between that as well. You have this constant, never-ending assault on the senses that sells you a bill of goods that no man can possibly deliver. And that's every minute of your day, every day of your life. Somebody or something is vying for your affection, your trust, your hope. But in, in the end, David says, let them all be liars and let God alone be true. Let them all be liars and let God alone be true. Why? Because everything that is true literally stems from the being and nature of God. It's part and parcel to who he is. He cannot be anything other than true. And so then I ask in light of that, if salvation belongs to the Lord, where else do you go? Why else would we go anywhere? If God is true and God is our rock and refuge and salvation, why would we find every other avenue that we could go down first instead of this one that we can wait upon in silence because he is the God of all truth and he is a God of comfort, he is a God of stability, he is a God of our rescue. I mean, Scripture comes up with all sorts of different names or attributes of God and every last one of them demonstrate his power and his care for his people. And yet it comes down to the question, do we actually believe it? My, my sentiment, my belief is that you and I all know the truth when it comes to the reality of who God is, at least if we're faithful to just open up the word and read it, right? But what happens is that even though we might hope in that truth, when something's shaken, even if only a little bit, we panic, Right? When the floor drops out from underneath you and you've got a choice between going back to the word of God, which you know is true, and just that moment of panic, where often do you go first? I mean, if you're a human being, if you're like I am, nine out of ten times, you go to panic. But God alone is the one that we can trust. It has to mean something. I'm going to press you on that every single way I can today, and it's not a throwaway line. I'm not even pressing you on it to rebuke you or to show you that you have much guilt or that you failed in all sorts of different ways, but I'm, I'm going to press that phrase because I'm literally pleading with you to just simply see it and to believe it and to trust it that God alone is the one you can trust. Every which way this life has to throw something at you, every bit of it fails, but God will not. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God has yet to be unfaithful to us, even though we have been unfaithful to him? Do we believe that God has yet to betray us, even when others have betrayed us, or we have betrayed others? Do we believe that in every which way God has revealed himself to be, he truly is that, and he has shown himself faithful and true to that? He has never been anything but that. Where men may fail, where Half-hearted truths or half-truths or bold-faced lies all come out. None of that is part of who God is, and it never will be. So many of us find reasons to just simply not believe that. But the reality is that this is what Scripture attests to very, very clearly. This is who God is. And then it says, therefore, you can trust him. Therefore, you can put all of your confidence in him. You need not give your heart or your trust to another, for he shall never fail you. He shall never lie to you. He shall never betray you. If you are in Christ, the promises of God are sure to you. They cannot be stripped of you, and they will never, ever be taken away. That is, again, the very first principle we learn from this psalm. The very first reason David says we ought to trust in God and God alone 
Even though all others may be liars, God alone is true. The second, which we see now in verses 5 through 8, God alone is safe even when the times are not. So look down with me once more. Notice in verse 5, he starts it much like he did before. My soul, wait in silence for God only or God alone. Why? For my hope is from him. He only or alone or surely, depending on what translation you use, he surely is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Now notice again, he starts it much like he did the first section, doesn't he? But there's a subtle difference here, and it actually plays out all throughout this section. There are a number of those subtle differences. But the very first one you see is, instead of that affirmation you get in verse 1 where he he says, my soul waits in silence for God alone. Notice what he says here. My soul wait in silence. In other words, he's actually giving himself a specific command. He is rebuking himself in one sense and saying, my soul, trust in this one. Perhaps the gravity of the situation is kicking in once more. Maybe he's starting to doubt or worry. We don't know. But at the end of the day, whatever that case might be, he's now exhorting himself, hope in this one who is faithful and true. Put your faith in God once more. Notice this time it's not his salvation, he says, that comes from God. Right? Look down again. He says, why? For my hope comes from him. Now, that idea is not removed from salvation. Again, it's an intensity there. He's emphasizing all the more that he actually now has a substantive hope. Right before I was waiting on God for salvation, now I am eagerly in anticipation that I know God will save me. No matter what may come, God will save me. Little by little, you can see he's actually deliberately taking his emotions and he's placing them in subjection to the word of God. He's bringing himself back to confidence in God. No matter what may come at him, he's looking at things and saying, okay, this is one I can trust. Therefore, trust in him, my soul. I mean, if I can give you a basic thing of counsel, anytime your heart and your mind starts to go wayward, just do that. I've been in my car and been like, okay, Grayson, shut up. Stop it. What do you know is true? Who is God? What has he done? What has he promised to do? Get out of your own head. Get out of this despairing mood and put your hope and confidence in Christ. I've rebuked myself before. Notice all this is intentional. Verse 6, there's a very, very slight difference again. He keys in on the attributes of God, those things that describe who God is. You know, before you saw this in verse 2, he's going to do this again. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. God alone are these things to him, right? But notice the difference. I shall not be shaken. Look back at verse 2. You can see it. I shall not be greatly shaken. Do you see the confidence? Do you see his hope is continuing to build? As he places more and more of his resolve and heart and mind to trust in this one that is the infinite perfections of trust, he now has developed hope. God is so secure to David that he he has the utmost confidence God will save him. Nothing can assault his faith in God. Though his enemies may surround and seek his life, God has not changed. 
That's what he's able to look at. He goes, in being and in essence and who God is, God is still very much the same God. My situation hasn't improved. The things haven't gone away. The people are still trying to kill me. Everything's going poorly, but God is still God. At the end of the day, for David, that's exactly what he needs to simply wrap his mind around. He's grown in his confidence, and that's the only thing that's actually changed in between these two sets of verses here. And this is only a result that can come when one thinks deeply upon God and his word. As you study the scriptures, what you start to see is that little by little, you observe what God has done. You start to then see a picture of who this God is. The more and more you read, the more you see a different aspect of who God is, his character, his nature, his being. The more you see his nature or his being, who he is, the more you see that it's not just some abstract theological concept or philosophical concept, as if I'm going to say God is love, but that doesn't have any legs to it because I don't see the ways in which he is loving. No, you start to see that God is a deeply personal God, that he manifests his love in a myriad of different ways even in just simply sending the rain. But then you see that it's not merely that the rain happens. It's not just this general love. You see in the scriptures that God reveals a very specific love. That God has showered his own people. He has called them out as people that are undeserving of his grace, and he set his special love upon them. That in spite of all the different things that they have done in which they have been sinful and failed, that God has uniquely covenanted with them. He has promised and says that no matter what, he will be faithful and true. He alone is able. And more than this, these words are not just mere words like that of a man who lies and fails to live up to his promises. This God has the power and the might to actually accomplish everything he sets out to do. And so then you start to see it. You're like, okay, the grace of God, the power of God are not two different things here. They work in conjunction because of who God is. They join together in one glorious truth that this God is both able and gracious and he is worthy of trust. He is worthy of every bit of my confidence. He is the one with the power to be able to do something about this, but he is also gracious enough to actually do something. He shows his care for his children. And when you've reflected upon that truth, when you see that even though the situation may not change, it might even get harder, that others might come against you in a more fierce way, God is still the one who is your refuge and strength in an unsafe world. Though everything may be uncertain, though everything may be topsy-turvy, so to speak, you find your resolve, not in yourself, not in your fellow man, not in this broken and sin-ridden world, but in the God who is above it all, the God who remains the unshakable one. And if your hope and confidence is in the unshakable one, you won't be shaken. Again, not because of anything of who you are, but purely on the basis of who God is. <laughs> This is why he affirms in verse 7. Look down one more. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge, is in God. Everything that we would consider David special for, everything that we would look at him and say he's a man of great faith and so on and so forth, is all coming from God. 
Right? I mean, literally, look at it. He says, on God, my salvation and my glory rest, the rock of my strength, my refuge. Everything that he focuses upon is not everything that's in and of himself, but rather all that comes to him from God. Everything, his salvation, his glory or honor as a king, so his reputation, his renown, his strength even, his safety, his security, every bit of it, he says, all that rests on God. The simple reality then for David is that if all of these things come on the basis of who God is and on the basis of God's promise to him, then it is only God who can strip those things away from him. In other words, he has the utmost confidence to put his trust and resolve in God because God is not unfaithful to his word and promise. God is the one who has provided David with strength and glory and honor. Let me put it slightly differently and just contextualize it for you. Everything that you have, literally everything, only comes to you by the sheer grace and mercy of God. It is a gift. Everything you own. But beyond that, it goes well beyond the external possessions we have to the, even the intangible things you don't think about. <clears throat> right? Older men, or even men my age now, right? you didn't realize your youthful strength until it started to go away, right? In the same way, you don't recognize or miss, rather, your lungs until they stop working. You don't think of the value of your reputation or your name until you've lost it. All of these things, David says, are resting on the basis of who God is. Not him. Not David. For David, every aspect of his life belongs to the Lord, and in light of that, he can trust in him. And that's essentially what he's getting at. He's like, okay, I might need to be rescued, but salvation comes from the Lord. I might lose my glory or my reputation in the sight of men, but my dignity rests upon what God thinks. I might lose my strength. My heart may grow frail and cold, but my strength comes from God. Every last aspect he looks at and says it rests upon God and God alone. Even at the end of all days, he might not be safe, but God is his refuge. God is his sure place of refuge, the only place of refuge. But notice he's not content to just stop here and and talk about all the ways that this is good for himself. In verse 8, he now turns to the congregation, even to you, even to me this morning. And he says this wonderfully simple thing. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. Why? God is a refuge for us. Not just me, but for us, for the people of God. This is the one and only direct command, positive command, given to the congregation in this psalm. And the command is very, very simple, isn't it? Trust in God. And many of you are like, okay, that's a simple one for you to read, but it's a different story when I actually have to do it, right? But notice what he says, when? At all times. Every waking moment. Every waking moment, direct your trust to God and God alone. And the way that command is expressed is actually even more simple. And it's put in clear words in the second phrase, pour out your heart before him. In other words, pray. Pray. And then the reason why the command is expressed is then made clear. God is a refuge for us. He is the one we can hide in. He is the one who cares and keeps us safe. 
And so in this one verse, you have everything you need to carry out the command to actually trust in God. If you're a man or woman who struggles in that, be given to prayer. Give it, give it to him all times of all days. If you don't even know what that looks like, just start somewhere. It's okay. In essence, all of that prayer is, it's, it's, it's just an expression of our trust in God. That's it. We tend to make everything so much more complicated, but the reality is when we pray to God, we are actually giving up or resigning our own will and entrusting ourselves to him. We are entrusting that he not only hears us, but he will answer our prayers. That he is a kind and gracious God, that again, he is able to do something about it, but that he still loves us too. And so my question again is, if you struggle with faith, if you struggle with belief or even trusting, how much do you pray? The picture given here is that you pour out your heart, right? It's not just this thing we do every once in a while, seldomly. It's not the thing where we reserve even the best of our prayers, or we go at certain times of the day. The reality is that at all points, you lay the contents of your heart bare. Every last bit comes tipping out. There are no wishes, no desires, no laments, or even fears that are tucked away into the corner of your soul. Every last bit of it comes out. There's no hint of dishonesty, as if you can pull the wool over God's eyes anyhow, right? I mean, God already knows. But that's the idea, is that whatever you've got stored up inside, you just come before your Father and let it all out. And at all times suggests that there really is no time that's off limits. Day or night, good or bad, whenever the need arises, you go to your heavenly Father. That's one of the beautiful things that you have in Jesus Christ is that you have access to the throne room of God at any waking moment. I would also argue, though, that it shows this particular heart attitude toward prayer, that there is this idea of constant communion with God. It's not that you don't do anything else throughout the day, but that literally, just as you breathe, that every waking moment of the day is a moment rather good enough for prayer. That as soon as you have a worry or a concern, you immediately go to God with it. You are in this constant state of communion with your God through prayer. It doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't need to be long. But like a newborn baby who depends upon the mother, you depend upon your father. And the way you do so is through prayer. But most of all, the point's not even so much all the different ways you can pray and the times you can bring them forth, so much as the one you bring them to. That's really the key idea you're coming before this one who is the God of all creation and you're just simply saying, I trust you. I may not know what will go right or wrong. I may not know how it will end. You know in my heart I desire this. I don't even know if that's a good desire. But I trust you, Father. That's the beautiful thing about it. You're deliberately choosing to come before your Father before anyone and any, anything else. You're the one thing that you can actually trust. Again, just think about it in one grand sense. Think of how much power and might God actually has, right? He controls all of the universe and everything beyond it that you don't even know that's in this universe or outside of it. Everything in all creation is under the beck and call of this God, and yet he's not some cosmic bully who stands aloof to the problems of his children. He actually gives them an audience, He bids every last one of us to come into his presence and bring our cares to him. Even as he tells us no, he does not turn us away. 
right? I mean, we, we, we tend to think of it like God is just like, okay, get the heck out of here, like a fledgling kid who is just bugging him. But the reality is that he still gives you an audience in his presence where he has every right to cut off your speech. He doesn't even need to hear your voice. He knows your requests even before you do. And yet, he still bids you come. He still will give you an audience. He still brings you into his presence. And even when he says no, he does so with the utmost care of a loving father who, though he denies your request, it is not because he is malicious. It is because you have a bad request. That's okay. We all do. All of that's won for you because of Jesus Christ. Is that not wonderful? Is that not grace upon grace upon grace? But even in the midst of this, there's a reality that he's testifying to about this implicit warning, if you will. The truth behind the command for us to go to God at all times is that both the good times and the bad times have a way of eroding our trust in our Heavenly Father. You hear that? Both the good times and the bad times have a way of eroding your faith or your trust. The good times really lull us into a stupor. When everything is right in life, how often do you feel the need to pray? Honestly, right? When you think that the days are great, right? There's no pressing tragedy to avoid, no urgent suffering to escape, no deadly sin to kill, no enemies that are persecuting you that want to kill you like David here that you need to run from. Life is just pleasant. Everything's great. You might stop and give the occasional prayer request in Thanksgiving, but you don't think of the subtle dangers that lie just around the corner. Much like the disciples in the garden, we're not on alert, we're not watchful, we're not in prayer, and temptation is ready to seize us. What we do is simply continue about our days, again, with this prideful sort of arrogance that forgets apart from Jesus Christ, we can do absolutely nothing. That's the good days. And they're often just as dangerous as the bad days. We just don't see it that way. We don't see that Satan is always prowling in the midst of our families, seeking to devour our wives, our children, even us. But then the bad days come, and what happens? We did not spend that time of developing trust on the good days. We find it all the harder to actually do when the rubber meets the road, so to speak. We're not prepared. All because we didn't pray as we should have. At all times, right? That's the command, at all times. When the bad days come, instead of trusting in God, what we do then is we grow anxious, we fret. We give in to all sorts of different decisions where we're making them just rapidly because we think we've got to do something now. But at the end of the day, if you're like I am, you just screwed up worse because you're just fretting. You're just anxious and making some foolish decision. At the end of the day, we don't silently wait upon the Lord and believe he will actually act in it. And there are times where we have to do that. And that's when it becomes all the more difficult to do. Because in the midst of a time where we have to do that, instead, again, we'll lean upon the men of this world who deceive as if they are the trustworthy ones. We'll lean upon the system of beliefs in this world as if it's going to somehow give us hope. The point, nonetheless, whether it's the good times or the bad times, beloved, is that at all times, God alone is worthy of our trust and hope. He is the one who is our refuge. He is the one that we must go to at all times. So if the days are good, he is your sure place of safety. He will keep you safe from that 
malaise of the soul, that stupor that you fall into, where you forget or you do something that you should never do, because times are just easy. On the bad days, he is your refuge and safety. He will keep you upon the solid rock that is Jesus Christ and keep you safe to the very end. On the good and the bad days, both of those things are true. That's why we trust him. The difficult doctrine of what it means to trust in God is very simply this. There really is no golden era. There is no bygone world where times were more peaceful or better. All of them alike are tainted by this reality we call evil and sin. Every last one of them. In ease and peace, we can be led astray by our own sinful hearts and different creature comforts that pull us away from dependency upon God. But in times of hardship and suffering, you can do much the same exact thing. No matter what days you may find yourself in, the reality is that the only safe refuge is in God and God alone. The way to make it then through this life unscathed is not that you are unscathed, but that in the midst of your scathing, if you will, that God is the one who is your refuge. That though you may be flayed, so to speak, and it's the height of unpleasantness, that God is the one who still keeps you safe when times are not. Everything else can go wrong in this life. You can have everything taken away from you. You can have all the people desert you. But the question is, when that happens or if that happens, where do you turn? You'll turn where you turn now, beloved. You'll turn to him then if you turn to him now. The second reason, again, why we place our trust in God and God alone is that he is safe when times are not. He is safe at all times. But the third and final reason that David now reveals to us why we should trust in God alone is that even though everything else in this world is transient or temporary, God is not. God is eternal. God is sure. Look with me now at the final four verses in verses 9 through 12. He says, men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie, and the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression, and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your hearts upon them. So he begins by expressing what would be basically proverbial wisdom in this section. He looks at mankind, and he says, don't trust in them if they've got renown or stature. None of that matters. Don't trust in your riches either. None of those things will provide you with a genuine hope, right? The first statement he makes is by way of contrast between the haves and the have-nots, if you will. He looks at people of low-born status, and he just says, look, they're havel. They are vanity of vanities. Nothing about them makes them last. They go and float away on the wind just as they came in. They're here today and gone tomorrow. They may be the dregs of society, depending on who looks at it, but it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, they go away. But then just in case you and I are tempted to think that people who leave a legacy, people of renown are even more special, he says they don't matter either. They are just a lie. Right? They, they give this appearance of something that's important, but at the end of the day, they'll go away too. None of them is going to last. And that's perhaps one of the more difficult things to get people to see is that you might have several people that climb the ranks in society. You might have people on the social ladder, so to speak, who are always vying for your attention and you give it to them. But at the end of the day, none of that matters because they will go away just as the least insignificant person 
or rather the most insignificant person this life has ever seen. Both of them alike will go to the grave and die. Think about that in your world today. You have the Elon Musks, you have the Jordan Petersons, you have the Ben Shapiros of our day. But he says, men of rank are a lie. It doesn't matter. They're just as insignificant as the men of lowborn class, no matter who you are. That's all mankind, by the way. He's like, they're not going to turn the tide of the culture, despite whatever you might think. They're not going to make things more palatable or better for you as a Christian, despite what you might think. They will not swing the pendulum back to a better era, despite what you and I might think. And even if they do, doesn't matter. In one sense, he's looking at it, he's like, look, when everything is all said and done, if you look at that next phrase, when the balances, they go up. They are altogether lighter than breath, right? So he's looking at both the lowborn and highborn class, and he's like, you know what? Put them together in one scale, and what do you get? They sink, or they, they go up because the vapor is heavier. A mere breath is heavier than them both alike. Put them all together on the same scale at the same exact time, and that breath or vapor is weighted more significantly than those men. Therefore, why do you trust them? Right? That's the driving idea. That's, that's the thing. They're not as important as you and I might think. He's, they're mere mortal men, and at the end of the day, they will never do something that's as significant for you as Jesus Christ has done through his gospel. And though you might like to hear them go on and on, they're never going to bring any real substantive change. They're never going to provide you with hope when everything else goes wrong. None of them will care about your soul. When you have things going wrong and people are betraying you, when you've got every bit of your money going away, they're not going to be found. What they'll do is they'll talk at you through the radio. They won't hear your prayers. They have no genuine interest in the things of God and therefore do not fool yourself into thinking that you should trust them. But notice now David moves beyond the status of men to that of wealth in verse 10. He shows there are two ways that we can essentially find wealth in this life. You might find it through dishonest gain or you might find it through honest gain. Look at what he says. Do not trust in oppression, right? Those who would be vainly hoping in robbery, that's one and the same in that sentence. The idea is that they are ones who oppress the poor or the weak or the needy. They are the ones who then vainly hope in robbery because they just want to enrich themselves. But then, in verse 10, if your riches increase, so even if it goes higher than you might have anticipated, let's say you make an incredibly savvy investment, do not set your heart upon them. Three negative commands here, all about wealth, all about sordid gain, and even honest gain. At the end of the day, he shows if you put your trust in wealth, no matter what, it's the height of folly. That's just how he views money. The reason for it's rather simple. Much like Ecclesiastes says, when you die, it's going to go to somebody else anyways. I mean, and we all know that. This is one of the most difficult things for 21st century Americans to grasp, though, because we tend to think that simply because value is assigned to money or that it has value, that it will always have that value. But part of the reason, too, is that we always are fooling ourselves into thinking that we are the ones who are on the lower end of that receiving scale, so to speak, and everybody else is on the higher end. The reality, though, is that if you have even a little bit of money in your pocket today, top 2% of the historic world's wealth of all time, 
Kings would dream to have what you have. Kings would dream to have what I have. Every last one of us has more than we think we have. But at the end of the day, the point is still the same. To trust in that is folly. It will never deliver. It will never save. It will never rescue. It will never provide hope. As much as you and I might think that even the next dollar will, as Rockefeller said, right? It will never give what it promises. At the end of the day, the only one you can trust is God. That should be very little surprise to us when we consider what Christ even said. He said, you cannot love both mammon and money, or rather mammon and God. Rather, mammon is money, but you cannot love both money and God. The old slave driver, right? The one who brings us to our knees, thinking if only we had a little bit more, it would be good. But the point of the psalmist is incredibly clear. It flies in the face of our world. You cannot use your money to pay off anything. It will not save you from death. Death will come for you. You cannot bargain with this sinful, broken world as if you can stop the curse. Never will happen. You cannot buy off your unbelieving wife's salvation. Never will happen. No amount of cash will fix the problems of this world. The only thing that money will do is it will function as a God who will demand more and more and more of your allegiance and trust. But David says, utter foolishness. Trust in God alone. Every bit of this psalm is driving towards this reality. And the question that many will ask is always, why should I trust in God? Well, I've literally already given you two reasons or three, but I want you to see now at the very end of it, David even gives us a fourth, if you will. Verses 11 through 12, he contrasts the futility of all these things with what it actually means to trust in God. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. That power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you repay or recompense a man according to his work. The whole point of this section is radically simple. Power and loving kindness, or that rich Hebrew term, chesed, grace, comes from God and God alone. They belong to him. God is capable of doing whatever he desires to do. He is also gracious, though. Right? The two are uniquely joined in him, that he has both the power to do whatever he wants to do and the faithfulness and kindness to do what he has said to do and to do it in a way that's actually beneficial for you and I, at least if we are in Christ. If you divorce those two things, what you are left with is one of two options. Right? God is powerful, but he's not gracious. Horrible mixture. The other option is that God is gracious, but he's not powerful to do anything real. Again, a horrible mixture. What you find in the God of the Bible, though, is that these are very things that are intrinsic to who he is. He cannot be anything other than powerful and faithful. He is the one who has the power or the power and the authority to take up whatever he desires and do it. And yet the way he uniquely shows that is through his graciousness and kindness to us. On the last day of judgment, though, it will not be that. It will not be that to those who have rejected Jesus Christ time and time again. On the last day, his power will be demonstrated against them in wrath for all eternity, whereas his grace and his power will be manifested for only those who believe. At the end of the day, what he's doing is very simple once more. He's revealing that this God who has shown himself to be faithful and true, to be powerful in every way, is worthy of your trust. 
but only he and he alone is worthy of your trust. You cannot have anything else on top of it. That is the basic message or gist of the psalm. Our total confidence, our total hope is to be placed in God and God alone. No other thing will provide. No other thing will rescue. But no other thing, especially on that last day of judgment, can save. And that's the unflinching reality of it. In light of that truth, again, he just simply says, God will repay every man according to his deeds. Death and judgment are the certain end for everyone. Rich, poor, black, white, it doesn't matter. It's not a matter of what you do that you make wise choices or rather, but who you trust. Is God the one you trust? Everything else will prove to be a failure and unstable. Only God and God alone will be the one that you can trust. And so when all is said and done, there's only really one question that will ever matter in your life. Do you trust in Christ? Is Jesus Christ the sole source of your hope and comfort in every aspect of life? Christ himself says you cannot appease two masters. It will never work. You will serve one and hate the other. There are no fence straddlers. Despite the temptations that you and I might have into believing something else will save us or provide a comfort, rest, stability, whatever else you want to think about, the reality is that there is nothing in this world that can deliver on that promise. The only one can be Christ. He's not merely the one who just saves you from your sins, though. He's not a get-out-of-jail-free card option. He is both Lord and Savior. And therefore, the question is very simple. When things are terrible, will we trust in him? When things are great, will we trust in him? Will we put all of our confidence and hope in this one that God sent and demonstrated both his power and his grace in, that is, Jesus Christ, our Lord? Will we look at him as the sole means through which we can be saved? the one who takes the sins of the world away, the one who looks at the vile, impure, unclean sinner like you and I and says, I will make him clean. And will we trust in him for the rest of our lives as well in every other detail and say that this one who is mighty to save and gracious enough to save is mighty to sustain. He is mighty to whisk away all the trials and hardships of my life. And even if he does not decide to do so, he will carry me through faithfully to the very next life. He is faithful in every way. He is safe when times are not. He is eternal when all is transient. He is the exact opposite, in other words, of a broken world that promises you a bill of goods that it can never deliver. Therefore, I simply call you as a Christian today, if you are one, if this is the God you serve, you have no reason to fret. If you are not a Christian, though, I would look at you and say, why would you not come And trust this one. We have every reason to. He is faithful, he is powerful, and he's gracious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that you are an incredibly kind God, that you do not look upon us in all of our sinfulness, in all of our wickedness, and just simply destroy us as it would be your right to do but you are gracious. You show us love where we do not deserve it. You've set your favor upon us where we have often spurned 
you have forgiven us, knowing even that we often are like a dog that returns onto our own vomit. We trust in things that are not worthy of our trust. We do things that are not worthy of our own actions. And yet you are still faithful and true. In spite of all of us, and in spite of this sin-riddled and curse-filled world. So I pray that we would ultimately just be a faithful people. We would be a people who remember how you lavish us with grace and kindness, that we would not complicate it, but that we would ultimately look at it and say, how can we honor you and live our lives in reflection of that grace you give us? But I pray moreover that we would be a people who are always richly adorned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would bring it to those who are lost, family, friends, neighbors, whomever, and simply show them that you are the one who is worthy of trust. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.